Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Pod. My name is Ray. I am your host. And on today's episode, going to talk about the French Laundry and more specifically Thomas Keller, who is the founder, owner, and one of probably the most well-known chefs in America. Kind of like, um, he might also be like the most famous chef from America too as well, um, based on everything that he's accomplished and the French Laundry, which is out in Yountville, California, it's part of Napa Valley. Um, it's essentially like the. I'm trying to figure out how to like what I could say that would give it the proper gravitas, but it's it's really the most famous American restaurant that we've ever really had. I mean, it's super influential. The cookbook alone has influenced like numerous chefs um, that he released. He's got a bunch of different restaurants now, uh, a couple closed because of the pandemic, uh, the one in New York and everything, which we'll get to. But it's really just an institution. It's almost like if you're, you know, if you're a foodie and you're into food, it's kind of whether it's, you know, the best restaurant in the country anymore. Most people, you know, agree that it's not, um, but it's still a staple within the culinary industry of America. And it's just one of those restaurants that even if it's not at like the height of its powers, it's still a good restaurant. And then also it's still very important from, you know, if you're into food to go there at least once and like have the experience of eating at this place that has so much history and has influenced a lot of different chefs, you know, Grant Ackett's, um, Renee Redzepi, I believe worked, uh, worked there for a little bit too. Um, a whole bunch of others. I mean, Corey Lee, uh, Tom uh, Hollingsworth has spent uh, time as the CDC there, or Tim Hollingsworth, sorry, uh, Eric Zebold. Um, those are kind of like the three main chef de cuisines who were kind of running the the restaurant when Keller kind of took a step back. Um, but you know, there's been numerous people that have that have worked there in some capacity and, and how influential it's been. So Keller himself, uh, he was born all the way back in 1955. Um, interesting, interesting kind of bio here that I'll, that I'll go through. So he was actually born in Oceanside, California. His dad was, uh, in the Marine Corps. He was a drill instructor. And then, um, I guess he has, six other uh siblings well five other siblings six children total so um five of which are boys and then um he's got so he's got like uh two older brothers there's a younger sister but uh his parents wound up getting divorced i think he was like seven and so his mom moved pretty much all the kids out to uh, across the country to palm beach florida that's where she had some family and uh, she actually managed a restaurant, the Palm Beach Yacht Club. And so that's kind of where Keller first started working. Um, he was too young to work as a full-time cook, so he started out as a dishwasher like so many chefs do. And he eventually uh, was able to work on the line pretty much once a uh, they had a cook-like call-out. And it was kind of short notice, so the kitchen staff there was shorthanded. He stepped in, was able to cook on the line, and then um, that's kind of, you know, he just stayed on the line um, moving forward, pretty much. 
He went to Lake Worth High School, graduated there in 1976, uh, enrolled at Palm Beach Junior College, briefly attended classes, then dropped out, uh, deciding that hands-on education in kitchens um, was way more valuable than anything that he would learn in a classroom. And so he decided to just kind of go all in with a, with a career in cooking. So he's 21, you know, out of college. Uh, he moved to Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, worked as the chef de partie at uh, Clark Cookhouse. There for, um, you know, several months. And then uh, the following year, at the start of summer, he went out to uh, Narragansett, which is just on the southeast part of the, the state of Rhode Island there. Spent the season, the summer season, working uh, under Roland Heinen at the Dunes Club. And Heinen, uh, he's a French-born chef, and he kind of taught him the fundamentals of classic French cooking. Um, And it kind of inspired Keller to try and master the art of French haute cuisine. So, you know, he pushed Keller, and he made him responsible for, you know, making the the nightly staff meal, which is kind of known as family meal now. Um, and then once summer ended, Keller went back to Florida and he actually wound up getting, uh, two business partners together and he opened his own restaurant, his first restaurant, Cobbly Knob. And it was near uh, a sports arena in West Palm beach. And the location, you know, they thought it was going to have a steady flow of traffic, you know, from people, you know, going to whatever events at the arena, but just didn't work out. The people were just mostly uninterested in, in what they were doing. It was too sophisticated. Um, it was too high concept uh, for kind of just passersby and stuff. So it was about open for like a year, and then they wound up closing it. Just it wasn't going to work. Um, so once that closed, Keller went down the street basically to Cafe du Parc, and uh, that was open – that was owned by uh, Pierre and Anne Marie, um, husband wife owners, and they brought him on as a sous chef. And you know he worked there for a little bit, and then they recommended him to their friends Renee and Paulette uh, McCary, who owned a small seasonal French restaurant in uh, Catskill, New York. They were looking for an executive chef to run the place, you know, during the the summer months when it was open, basically. Um, pretty much like tourist season. So like May through September kind of was when the restaurant was open. They made Keller an offer to run the kitchen. Uh, the restaurant was called, uh, La Rive and he accepted on the condition that he would have free reign over the menu in the restaurant itself. He, he wasn't, he wanted to do his food his way. Didn't want anybody interfering in kind of what he wanted to do, uh, concept, you know, concept wise and, and everything like that. So, he basically worked there like solo. Uh, I guess the McCary's grandmother helped out with doing some mise en place, some food prep and stuff. But, um, you know, he spent pretty much every day working in the kitchen. In his free time, you know, he made improvements to the restaurant grounds. You know, he wound up building like a smokehouse to cure meats, um, cultivated relationships with local livestock purveyors, uh, started a garden on site too to grow vegetables. And then once the summer season Ended, it was 1980, so in kind of the early, you know, fall 1980, September. Uh, he went back to Florida and then worked as the uh, chef de partie at uh, La Seine, and that was also in Palm Beach. And then he worked there till the start of next summer and then came back up to the Catskills and started working as executive chef at 
Lariv again. So he's just basically breaking up his year, summer seasons up north, winter season back down south in, uh, in Florida was kind of what he was doing. And he was also starting to look at like how he could kind of further his study of French cuisine. So he wanted to go directly to the source. So he wanted to go work in France. Uh, so he started writing letters to different restaurants in France. You got to remember this is back in the 80s. There's no cell phones. It's landlines only. People aren't making international calls because they're super expensive. There's no internet. Uh, so a lot of it's word of mouth or different, you know, books that you can find or publications in the library. Uh, you have to do all this kind of legwork, this, you know, research by hand. Uh, it's not quick and easy. You can't just type something into Google. So started writing letters, sending those to different uh, restaurants and everything. Um, he was hoping to secure like a stage, uh, which uh, a stage, full term is stagiaire. Uh, everybody just calls it a stage, but it's a traditional French system in which basically uh, you're an unpaid apprentice and you learn skills from different uh, restaurant kitchens and you just kind of hop around from restaurant to restaurant for short periods of time, like a month or so, uh, you know, three weeks to a month, and then you go somewhere else. They don't pay you, but basically they're paying you in culinary knowledge. And it also looks really good on a resume too, you know, because you're able to put it on there so you can get references from, you know, these world-class chefs. Uh, if you do a good job there, you're kind of doing the bitch work, mostly mise en place, you know, maybe helping out with the cold station or, or subbing in if somebody calls out on, you know, a line cook station or something, if you're really good. But, um, you know, you put all that down on your resume and then when you're sending out resumes, um, you know, it's like, oh, he worked here for, you know, he spent time here, here, here and here. These three famous restaurants. So he kind of knows what he's doing. They took him in. So, so, you know, we can kind of give him a shot. He should know, you know, a little bit. So that's kind of the whole, whole stage system. Um, and once he, uh, returned, you know, from Florida, he's, and completed the second season uh, at La Rive in, in 1981. He actually went to New York City instead of going back to Florida, worked at uh, Raul's as the head chef um, throughout the winter. That restaurant was owned by uh, Sergei Raul, and he and Keller like became quick friends. They're still friends to this day. Um, and he wound up going back to La Rive for a third season in the summer months. And then, you know, he made the McCarries an offer to basically purchase the, the restaurant outright. Uh, but they didn't accept. They turned him down. So he finished the, the summer season of 1982 at La Rive and basically just left. Uh, never intended really to come back. Wanted to, you know, buy his own, you know, have a restaurant of his own, but it just wasn't going to work out. They weren't willing to sell. So um, that was kind of it for him. You know, he wanted something a little bit more permanent and um, went back to New York City landed a chef de partie position um, at uh, the Polo Lounge, which uh, Danielle Balud was also working there at the time too. That uh, that was inside the Westbury Hotel. About a year later, he was there. He was there for about a year. And then um, he finally got a response to some of the letters that he was sending out. So it was, you know, at this point, it's what, two years almost. You know, he started getting some letters back and he received an offer to work at Arbois which was a, a restaurant in the northeastern area of France. So he went over, uh, but the position turned out to be kind of less than advertised. It, it just wasn't a good fit, I guess. It, don't really know exactly why, if it was they just had him doing like really grunt work or they wouldn't let him do anything or, or what. Um, and so he basically kind of left that stage and headed off to Paris. Um, Raul, Sergei Raul, he had an apartment uh, in Paris, so 
Keller was able to stay there rent free and then was able to stage at uh, Guy Savoy, uh, Talivent, Michel Pascout, uh, Gerard Basson, Letois de Passy, Chiberta, uh, and uh, Le Prix Catalan over like the course of a full year. So he was able to work and get experience at like all these different great like Paris restaurants. Um, didn't have to pay rent, was able to stay at his friend's apartment, you know, cause he wasn't making any money anyways. But then what little money, you know, he did, if he made or, or came up with, he was able to kind of, you know, spend on some food and stuff like that too. So 1984, he came back uh, to New York city and was a chef de cuisine at Le Reserve. Uh, there for about a year then he went over to restaurant Raphael and uh, was there for about a year and a half before he partnered with Raul to open uh, a restaurant together called Raquel and that was at the beginning of 1987 so this was like his third attempt at owning a restaurant of his own the first one closed the second one he was rebuffed by the owners um, to take over so this one proved actually to be you know successful um, right away the, the French cuisine that they were serving became really popular with the Wall Street crowd. And, you know, the at the time, you know, you're looking at late 80s Wall Street. It's all about, like, just spending a shit ton of money, right? I mean, it's, you know, that's all they, they care about is making money, spending money, what it kind of looks like, what it's, what it's perceived. You know, it's kind of like that Wall Street, even that movie Wall Street, um, the Oliver Stone movie with Michael Douglas. It, it's kind of that vibe. You know, it's pretty cliche it's well documented a lot of movies and tv shows kind of set in that time frame you know what the atmosphere was like and they actually got a two-star review from the new york times um one you know pretty quickly after they opened so it really cemented like their footing the city you know footing in the city's culinary scene basically like hey like this is a pretty good restaurant like it's really pop they had a good client base but then uh october 19th you know that's known as a uh, you know black monday when the stock market just took a dump um so then they wound up you know losing their client base because a bunch of those you know wall street traders and stuff got let go from their different firms because um, all the stocks went down and they weren't really able to to pivot or anything at the time i mean they didn't want to reduce the menu down to like cliched bistro fare because uh, they're like, just kind of like what's the point and it would con compromise kind of the whole restaurant. And then it's very hard to get your reputation back once you make that pivot too. Like, so he decided to, Keller decided to leave the restaurant and then uh, it wound up closing a couple years later, 1990, um, closed permanently. But so pretty much after uh, he, he stayed in New York City, uh, he was working as a culinary consultant um, for John Clancy and, and also at uh, Chez Louis restaurant. And he was kind of miserable. You know, he tried to own a restaurant three different times, just had a brief success, but it, it still never really worked out. So he kind of took stock of his culinary career and felt that a change of scenery um, would be really good. His friends urged him to move to the West Coast. Uh, so he did, and he took over as executive chef at the uh, restaurant inside the Checkers Hotel in LA. And he was there for less than a year and then the hotel was sold and so the new owners and him kind of clashed about the direction of the restaurant and what they wanted it to be and what they wanted it to do so 
he bailed. He left 1991. Um, he wound up starting uh, Evo uh, Evo Inci, which was a small company that was uh, specializing in importing and selling authentic Italian olive oils and red wine vinegars. So it was a small thing, but he was, you know, basically kind of reduced down to going to different farmers markets at like Gelson's and Bristol Farms and grocery stores and stuff, and and trying to you know, sell olive oil kind of like one bottle at a time. He wound up going up to Napa in the spring of 1992 and he was introduced uh, to Don and Sally Schmidt by a, a fellow chef by the name of Jonathan Waxman. And the Schmidts were the husband and wife owners of a small restaurant. It was inside the building of a former steam laundry called the French Laundry. Um, so it's, you know, this heart of this up and coming kind of Napa Valley city, Yountville, like there's not much there, but you know, everybody kind of sees the potential and stuff. They were actually looking to sell the restaurant. Um, They just wanted to get out of the business altogether and retire. So they were just kind of done. Keller was interested. They wanted 1.2 million uh, for the restaurant, the property. That's everything. That was the restaurant, the building, the land, like all that stuff. So he was interested, went to an ATM, took out five grand, um, basically had to do it in 10 different 500 installments. So you can imagine he's standing there for a half an hour, put the card in, take out 500 bucks, put the card back in, take out 500. Like at the time, like you could do that. Now I, you can only do, I think it's like four or 500 bucks like a day. Uh, but at the time it was just a transaction limit, but you could do as many as you needed. And so he got the five grand, gave it to them as kind of like a down payment to like here, like I'm going to raise the money for the rest of it. Give me some time, but here's five grand. Put the sale in escrow. Like, don't sell it to anybody else. And then um, he went, took out a $5,000 cash advance on a credit card, and he hired an attorney to help him structure uh, a private placement offer. And then over the next year and a half, he basically cold called everyone he could think of to raise as much money as he possibly could uh, for the rest of the purchase. So he was offering shares of the business for like $20,000 a piece. Um, to people if they, you know, wanted to, to buy into the restaurant himself. Um, so it was like an 18 month fundraising spree, spoke with over 400 people, accepted 51 investments. And those all ranged in the amount from 500 bucks to 80 grand, um, for you know, shares or partial shares of the restaurant, essentially. Then he took all that money he raised, he secured, he was able to secure a bank loan and a federal loan, and then was able to purchase the restaurant outright from the Schmitz. And, um, as soon as he got the keys, he started renovating, uh, the entire restaurant. So one of the first employees that he hired was Laura Cunningham. She's from, uh, she was a university of Berkeley graduate. She had some experience in Napa Valley's culinary scene, but you know, they grew pretty close. It was kind of the closest thing he's ever had to a a wife really they never got married they wound up getting engaged um and she worked for a while for the thomas keller restaurant group once he formed that but then they um they eventually kind of split in a way like she just doesn't really work for the restaurant group anymore but um you know they never like officially split like their relationship either so it's kind of like a gray area situation but in um they got like engaged in 2008, but they, they never got married. So, um, 1994, the French laundry officially opened. Um, and basically he 
changed how the restaurant operated. He increased its hours of operation, um, had both animal and vegetable tasting menus, um, you know, made, you know, everything in a kind of small portions, um, you know, French style and everything and mixed in some imagination too, as well into kind of, you know, the traditional French cuisine that he was serving. And it was seen kind of as this creative Americanized reinterpretation of how French cuisine and, um, it's word kind of started spreading by mouth. First it got to San Francisco and then LA and then it started making its way eastward. Um, and then it just became, it grew more and more popular. It was like kind of this place, like you got to go see what this guy's doing. Like he's doing this amazing stuff with food. And so it eventually got to the point where it was like impossible to get a reservation at the French laundry. Um, like people would have to, if they were even able to get a reservation there, they would have to build out like their entire trip over this one night. Like we have to be there. So like, and you have to, you know, deconstruct it and work backwards. So, all right, if we have to be there on a Wednesday night for dinner, that means we need to fly into San Francisco on Monday so we can drive up on Tuesday. So we're already there. So then we're not late to dinner. And then if, you know, then we got to drive back on Thursday and maybe we could fly out Thursday or we could fly out Friday. Like they were kind of having to do that stuff. So less than like a year after opening, uh, food media began to take notice of what he was doing too as well. So it evolved from word of mouth to now like different publications are like catching wind of what he's going, what he's doing. He actually got uh, nominated for the Best Chef in California Award from the James Beer Foundation early 1995. Uh, the restaurant itself got nominated for um, the Best New Restaurant category. Didn't win, um, but like it was pretty amazing that he was nominated basically like a, the following year after opening. Like not even a full year had passed and he was nominated for a James Beard Award. Like that's how special the restaurant was or is, you know, but was at the time. Um, it was kind of viewed as like his arrival, like onto like the stage of like restaurant industry and culinary industry in America. Kind of, um, he wound up winning the, the best chef California award the following year. Um, he also won the outstanding chef award, 1997, same time in 1997, he got uh, a glowing review from food critic at the time, Ruth Reichel. Uh, she was uh, the New York Times and basically said the fr- quoted as saying the French Laundry was the most exciting plate to eat in the United States. Um, 1998, he wound up uh, partnering with his older brother, uh, Joseph. And Joseph originally helped him... Uh, open the French laundry. He was part of kind of like the opening team to help him get all that stuff together. But they wound up opening together, uh, Bouchon Bistro, which is also in Yountville. It's like right down the street, maybe, um, seven minute walk at most, um, same street. But, uh, that was kind of like the, his, his moderate kind of a little bit more casual kind of French bistro style, uh, restaurant. That quickly became successful on its own merit. Um, And then he also, that same year, released the now famous French Laundry Cookbook. That was in November of 97, or November of 98 when that came out. Um, It won a bunch of awards from, like, the International Association of Culinary Professionals. It was, like, Cookbook of the Year, won Best Cookbook Design, 
uh, is also the the best took home the best first cookbook Julia Child Award, which is you know notable. I mean, she's a a very famous chef too as well. So that she had an award named after. Her. Um, you know, he's named Chef of the Year by Bon Appetit magazine. Uh, it was also named number one restaurant in the Bay Area by Zagat. And that happened for like six consecutive years too as well. So it was like all this stuff kind of hit at once. Like, and that, like I said, that cookbook is, there's so many chefs that you kind of find out what their story is now. And it all, you can kind of trace a bunch of them back to, I was, you know, cooking and I heard about this cookbook called the French Laundry Cookbook. And I went to the library and I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, I was blown away. This is the stuff I want to do. That's like what every kind of, chef who's kind of running their own restaurant who's a semi big deal now like they can all kind of trace it back to that so um it was very influential it still is uh very influential too as well i mean there's a couple of other cookbooks that have come out since like he released another one um or is just coming out with another one that's like per se which is a new york restaurant the french laundry and and stuff mixed in and he had the the two um chef de cuisines um Corey Lee or um, not Corey Lee, uh, Corey Chow, I think is that per se, and also uh, David Beeren, who's the the CDC at uh, the French Laundry now. Those two guys contributed to to that cookbook, um, but like you know the Alinea cookbook is pretty influential, I think now, as is uh, Noma, because of all the different stuff that those two restaurants are doing. So they're kind of kind of following in the path. And the whole thing with cookbooks too is like, it's just an advertising like venture. It's marketing. Uh, you don't really make any, like, I think, I forget who's talking about their cookbook, but like you basically make the same margins as you would on, on a restaurant, nightly restaurant. So you're talking anywhere from two to 8%. Like you're not making a shit ton of money. The publication keeps most of it. Uh, God, I wish I could remember who was talking about that because they wound up uh, publishing it on their own and they made a bunch more money. It was actually worth it. That's why you see so many chefs, I guess, with they only publish one cookbook because it's like, all right, we'll get this out there. Then you have a cookbook. It's like a marketing vehicle, but most don't do it again because they're like, well, it's not worth my time to to put all these recipes and everything in here and, and do all the photography and all this different stuff. And then I barely make any money off of it and the publication keeps most of it. So that's kind of the world of book publishing is, is pretty cutthroat, I guess too, as well. So, um, but yeah, after kind of all that, uh, came out, you know, kept winning a bunch of awards. Um, you know, the Forbes travel guide, uh, which is also the mobile travel guide too, as well. Exxon mobile travel guide, like it's gone through a few different names, but, but they gave him some awards too. He was named uh, to kind of like the James Beard Foundation's Hall of Fame, the Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America Award. They give that out basically every year. It's kind of like a Hall of Fame award, like a career achievement award kind of thing. Um, and it was, you know, named top restaurant of the year by Wine Spectator. Um, you know, he won a bunch of different uh James Beard Awards got nominated for a column he was writing for the LA Times in 2001. Um, and then 2002, William Reed Media, they published uh, in their restaurant magazine kind of the first 
50 best restaurants in the world list. And that was kind of a one-off thing. It was supposed to be a one-off concept. It was a way for them to kind of sell more issues. Um, but it, it became kind of so popular that now they have, you know, it got rebranded and is now the world's 50 best restaurants list that comes out like every year in June. Um, on the first one, the 2002, the French Laundry was ranked third. Uh, El Bulli, which is this really famous, widely considered to be maybe the most creative and potentially influential restaurant in the world um, ever over in Spain. It's no longer around. It's closed. But uh, that was ranked number one. And then Gordon Ramsay's uh, self-titled restaurant in England was the second place for that year. And then basically every year since that rest that list started up until 2019, the French Laundry appeared on it in some form. And the way this list works is like you're usually you have a good mm, about seven to maybe ten year run where you're in kind of like the top fifty, and then you slowly fall down the list because you've been around so long. Like a lot of people have eaten there; they're not blown away by it anymore. There's new stuff that comes out. What's new? what's in the moment now. So you kind of drop down the list, but it's basically out of the, what? 20, 19, 18, 17 years. It's been on there 16 times. Like that's crazy. That's a crazy amount of times for it to be on the, on the list. Um, it's really impressive, but everything kind of changed, uh, for his restaurant group that he founded. Um, it was basically 2003. So, the French Laundry won the Outstanding Service James Beard Foundation Award. So it was just another award that they, you know, just constantly getting all these awards. Keller got an honorary doctorate, doctorate degree from uh, Johnson & Wales University. Uh, in June, the French Laundry was named the best restaurant in the world um, by that world's 50 best restaurant list. In July, he opened Bouchon Bakery next door to Bouchon Bistro in Yountville. And the whole concept for that was to provide both Bouchon Bistro and the French Laundry with basically fresh bread that they made in-house daily. Um, and they also you know, would make their baked goods and stuff and make those available to the public. But that was kind of the whole reason why it was conceived. I mean, Bouchon Bistro basically was conceived because Keller wanted some place that he could go after working a shift at uh, the French Laundry where he could go and drink and nobody would really bother him. So that's why he started Bouchon Bistro. <laughs> Um, and then, um, after, you know, he opened Bouchon bakery, um, they wound up, uh, starting their own kind of wine label, uh, modicum, which is, yeah, it was him, uh, the French Lonnie sommelier, Bobby Stuckey, and then, uh, Laura Cunningham, uh, actually designed the label for the wine too, but the grapes are grown from, uh, organic vineyard above where Auberge du Soleil is, uh, in, in I think Auberge is in Rutherford, if I remember correctly. So it's not too far. Um, so yeah, he started his own wine label to that year. And then next year, 2004, um, he wound up opening a second Bouchon Bistro, uh, in the Venetian, which is a casino hotel in Las Vegas on the strip there. And then he also opened per se in New York city. Um, about a month later on February 16th. It's basic per se, and I've been to it, and there'll be a separate podcast on per se, as well as Bouchon Bistro. Um, per se is like the, 
it's New York's version of California cuisine is kind of how they labeled it. It's a sister restaurant to the French Laundry. Uh, it's on the fourth floor of the Time Warner Center, uh, Columbus Circle. I think now it's called the Shops at Columbus Circle. Time Warner doesn't brand it anymore or whatever. Jonathan Benno um, is who he picked to be the chef de cuisine and run the day-to-day operations there. And um, they actually had a small fire like the first week and uh, they had to close temporarily and rebuild the kitchen. And then um, then once they reopened, like Per Se got all these accolades you know, from the New York media. It was a really big deal that he was opening a New York restaurant uh, and he was bi-coastal and everything. And I mean, critics loved it. It wound up, you know, getting a five-star rating um, from the mobile travel guide. French Laundry was again named the best restaurant in the world uh, that year too as well. So it was the first restaurant ever to receive uh, the top ranking in consecutive years. I mean, you know, it was top 40 restaurants in America by Gayot magazine. Um, But he released a, a Bouchon cookbook too as well like i mean he's hitting it hard uh i think he also consulted uh on the adam sandler movie spanglish too for the culinary scenes he he was a culinary consultant for that um launched a dinnerware line he what else did he do uh flatware and cocktail collection like he's he's just like at this point he's so big so infamous so famous like he's anything that he can within reason, like anything that he can do to kind of keep his public persona and monetize, he is. But similar to kind of like what the food network is to a lot of chefs who wind up there, it's, it's just this like marketing vehicle, but he didn't have to go to the food network. He, because of his work, his like star had risen to this level that like the only other way to get there would be like having the back backing of a network, like the food network. So he didn't have to do any of that. He did all this on his own. So it's really impressive. His business acumen is really impressive too as well. Because um, he, he never really got labeled as like a sellout either. Like there was a time where if chefs started to to monetize themselves with, you know, putting their names on different pots and pans and stuff, it was seen as kind of like you're selling out um, by kind of the chefs that were working day to day in the kitchen. And like Bourdain even talks about it too in one of his books like he basically had a choice after he wrote um kitchen uh, confidential and he basically had a choice like well i can keep working in the kitchen hopefully eventually you know take this book opportunity monetize that into you know like food network appearances and you know, eventually put my name on some pots and pans or something like that, uh, like so many other chefs, or I could kind of go this other direction and be like a food journalist. And, and, you know, he had ideas for like, okay, could I do like a TV show? I could continue kind of writing. Um, it was kind of the long play and, and that's the direction that Bourdain decided to go, but he talks about it. I can't remember which book, but he talks about like having the opportunity and, and he was like, you know, didn't really know which way to go, and he went, and he went that one. Um, what else here? So where are we at? Uh, yeah, I got nominated for a bunch of stuff again, uh, you know, from the James Beard Foundation. Per se wound up making its appearance on the World's 50 Best Restaurant list, too, as well. This is, oh, what is this, 2006, I think, 2005? 2005, um, per se, 
pops up on the world's 50 best restaurant list at seventh. So the French Laundry wound up being third that year. So he had two top 10 restaurants in the world, according to this publication. Um, he's like the first to ever do that. He was, you know, still had the highest ranking restaurant in the U.S. too on the list. Um, like it was a big deal. Like he basically had two of like the 10 best restaurants in the world, according to everyone. Uh, then, you know, the fall of 2005 Michelin guide comes to town and per se winds up getting, um, three Michelin stars right away in the, the debut guide for the book too. So hadn't even been open, you know, two full years yet. And it's got three Michelin stars. It's one of the seven best restaurants in the world. Like, that's per se. And then the French Laundry's over there, and that's the third best restaurant in the world. And then basically the following year, you know, Michelin went out to San Francisco, and, and the French Laundry got three stars there. And also uh, Bouchon Bistro got a single star. So he had, within like this span, he's got, you know, these two great restaurants. He's got seven Michelin stars, two three star restaurants, two of the seven best restaurants in the world, according to this other publication all these accolades from the James Beard Foundation, like, it's crazy. Um, he's the first American-born chef ever to hold three Michelin stars at two separate restaurants simultaneously. Uh, won a bunch of other awards, Wine Spectator, uh, Grand Award, because of their, their wine list, too. All this different stuff. Um, you know, 2007, more James Beard Awards, um, but he also wound up uh, at that time kind of reconnecting with his father. Uh, his father was involved in a car accident, broke his neck, and became a quadriplegic. So doctor said that uh, his, his dad, Ed, only had a couple months to live due to the severity of the injuries and the crash. But, um, you know, Keller being kind of on the top of the world had a, a good enough amount of money at the point where he, you know, was able to take care of them and, and provide around the clock care in home nurses. They were doing daily food deliveries from, you know, some of his Yonville restaurants. So his, uh, his father actually, you know, his life expectancy increased, um, and exceeded what all the doctors kind of, kind of gave him. Um, you know, he wound up doing a partnership with, uh, Mac for knives um, did some limited edition sets that were, you know, basically what, uh, he was using in the kitchen at the French laundry. So, you know, they're selling those culinary Institute of America named the 2007's chef of the year. Um, then in 2008, his dad wound up passing away. Um, they both kind of knew it was coming. Uh, I guess Keller kind of cooked him his favorite dinner of barbecue chicken and, and mashed potatoes and stuff. Um, before he wound up uh, passing away. And this kind of marked a period of change in Keller. He, I guess from everybody around him, became kind of softer and more patient leader, greater appreciation for collaboration. Um, he wasn't focused solely on what he had going on and growing what he had already made even further. Uh, he started looking at like where his place in the world was and, and where his place in the culinary industry would be when it was all said and done kind of stuff like that, which I think most people kind of take a, a reflection when they have like a close family member pass away too as well. As well. Um, 
2008, he agreed to be the president of uh, Team USA for the Bocuse d'Or, which is, that's a biennial culinary competition. It's held in Lyon, France. It's like, uh, think of it as almost like the Culinary Olympics, kind of. That was founded back in 87 by uh, French chef Paul Bocuse. And he's kind of, Bocuse is kind of Keller's mentor, uh, almost in a way. Never formally, I don't think ever actually worked for him, but learned a lot for him with just connecting once his his star became bright enough uh, on the world stage. So, um, you know, Keller wound up founding Mentor, an organization basically to help inspire, you know, young professionals but still, you know, teach them kind of the traditions of the classic culinary techniques. And that was almost kind of like the training organization, if you will, that would funnel competitors to the, the Bocuse d'Or competition. Um, so him over kind of seeing it being, being president, he was responsible for recruiting and training participants. Um, you know, basically, if you think of it as the competition itself is the Olympics, and then it's, you know, the, the U.S. Olympic body. And that's kind of the, the direct comparison between the two. So, um, you know, he was able to bring in, you know, Tim Hollingsworth, uh, who was a chef de cuisine at the French Laundry at the time. Uh, they took home sixth place, um, which was the best ever finish by a Team USA participant. That was January 2009. Um when the competition actually went down, but you know, he published another cookbook at the end of 2008. Um, a year later published ad hoc at home, which was a fourth cookbook. Uh, what else? Opened, uh, another Bouchon restaurant in Beverly Hills. It was like inside a 17,000 square foot, um, building cost like 12 million, I guess, to construct or, or renovate the building. Had a bar area on the first floor, main dining room on the second floor, outdoor terrace with an open patio um, up top too. And started doing like a pop-up restaurant over at the Mandarin Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong for four days. Um, Then came back, launched uh, Finesse Magazine, you know, which was like this publication uh, to kind of provide insights into the industry to kind of an audience essentially. Um, got elected to the Culinary Institute of America's Board of Trustees, and that allowed him to, you know, contribute to the school by offering, you know, his unique perspective and experience to to students in the form of like guest speaking and stuff like that. So, um, if you fast forward to kind of 2011, he was inducted into the French Legion of Honor, which is like the French Culinary Hall of Fame basically um what about 2011 per se won a james beard award for outstanding service um he wound up opening um we're kind of launching this brand too in 2011 uh cup for cup so there was a chef at uh in the french laundries research and development department uh, lena kwai and she wound up developing like this gluten-free flour uh, conversion ratio recipe. And that's how they would make the salmon tartare cornet, which is like this little comb thing uh, that they start pretty much every 
meal off with. Um, sometimes it's salmon, sometimes it's flounder, sometimes it's tuna, beef, whatever. Um, but they were able to make it the exact same as the original, but take out the gluten for anybody who had dietary restrictions. So then they kind of took that um, and utilized that inside all the bakeries and stuff too, so they could make you know baked goods that were gluten free. He was actually gonna flood kind of New York City with Bouchon bakeries. Uh, he was gonna just like explode the brand across like um, you know the boroughs and stuff, and have like a century located commissary in Queens, and they would deliver baked goods um, and pastries and stuff to all the different locations across the city. But he wound up scrapping those. He just opened a second Bouchon Bakery in Rockefeller Center Plaza instead. Uh, I don't know exactly why he decided to pivot there. Probably, I got to imagine it would have kind of cheapened the brand a little bit, you know, to have all those um, different locations. Because this is still back before, like, this is before the rise of, like, Milk Bar and stuff like that, too. So and there's a lot of different bakeries and, and stuff um, across New York. So who knows how it would have gone. 2012, he opened uh, Addendum, which was like a seasonal extension of this restaurant that he had called uh, Ad Hoc, which was kind of like this pop-up thing that he was doing that he did um, over in Hong Kong. And it was basically like making like box lunches to go and stuff. Um, You know, he got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the World's 50 Best Restaurant List, uh, published in fifth cookbook, Bouchon Bakery in the fall. That got nominated like every other cookbook he did for a James Beard Award. Um, opened a second Bouchon Bakery with a gelato shop on the second floor of the Venetian. And then also opened like a little kiosk stand on the other side of the hotel that year too. So that's 2012. 2013, he opened Bouchon Bistro and Bouchon uh, Bakery. Next to those, uh, he opened a retail shop called Finesse. Just like the magazine that he started, um, it was just like a retail property, so you could like buy cookbooks there if you were visiting the restaurant. Um, different little kind of trinkets and stuff like that too. Uh, any kind of branded item that he had, they were all available for purchase. You know, in that store, started working with Allclad, which was a copper cookware line, uh, essentially. So started doing that. Um, you know. The whole purpose of that, he designed it, you know, with them in coordination with them for the use in the Bocuse d'Or competitions, the Culinary Olympics there. 2014, uh, he actually closed the French Laundry temporarily. So the entire basically property could be uh, renovated and rebuilt. So he um, redid the entire kitchen and the annex buildings on the property. Uh, They were demolished, renovated, rebuilt. The construction plan was so they could, they added solar panels, geothermal wells, a 16,000 bottle wine cellar, uh, cost like 11 billion to do all that stuff. And while the restaurant was under construction, they hosted a pop-up, um, called Adlib at the Silverado resort and spa. And then the following April, 2015, the French laundry reopened. So it was, it was closed for about like six months, six to eight months, um, while they're doing the construction. And then, um, what, 2015, uh, the USA finished second in the Bocuse d'Or competition. Um, it was the first time they had ever won a medal, basically, there. And then kind of we get into 2016. So 
Pete Wells published um, a review. He's the food critic for the New York Times. I've mentioned on different podcasts. Um, but he was working for the New York Times there. And he published a, a review in January of 2016 on Per Se and his experience there. And basically, like, eviscerated the restaurant and Keller. Uh, he just labeled it as, like, out of touch with what's relevant in the dining scene at the time. Um you know, said that the tasty menus were too long. They were obsolete for the day and age where people just kind of wanted in and out, um, you know, cause some of his tasty menus can go like three plus hours. Like it's an experience, you know, it's not something that you're on the flip side. Like it's not something that you're supposed to do all the time. Like it's a special event kind of thing. Like nobody really wants to spend three hours at a dinner every week. That's exhausting. Um, so like Keller kind of took responsibility, wound up eventually changing chefs, uh, head chefs at, uh, per se at the time, um, switching over to, to who's there now. But he basically, you know, kind of realized that he was doing a little bit too much and maybe his focus wasn't exactly on the restaurants as it should have been. So he wound up going to every single one of the restaurant properties and, and spending some time there and, figuring out like what needed tightening up, what needed changing, what were they not doing right anymore and stuff like this. They're taking shortcuts on different things and, and really tightened up operations and, and refocused the entire staff at all the, the different restaurants and, and businesses that he had. Um, 2017 USA, uh, which at the time, uh, who was involved, uh, Hersey's, uh, Matthew Peters and Harrison Tyrone, they won, uh, the gold medal at the Bakus d'Or competition there. So that was kind of like the first time, I mean, this first time the USA has ever won it first gold medal, second medal overall. Um, so it was a really big deal in terms of kind of the, that part of the culinary industry. Um, he wound up actually closing the Beverly Hills location of Bouchon later that year. Um, just couldn't, Beverly Hills basically owned the building and he had a lease agreement with them and they changed the lease agreement and it just wasn't going to work. So it was the first restaurant that he had closed since, you know, 1990, 1991. Um, and it was the first restaurant that he had closed since, you know, the opening of French laundry and the founding of the Thomas Keller restaurant group. So it was, it was a pretty big deal. Um, wound up opening, uh, a Bouchon bakery over in Kuwait city, um, in the fall though, like right before 2018. And that was his first international kind of location. Um, also launched K&M chocolate, which is basically, um, chocolate made with olive oil instead of cocoa butter. Um, it, you know, it, they say it's quote unquote healthier. I don't know. It's still chocolate at the end of the day. Um, just a different method kind of creates a different texture and, and different flavor profiles. We, we actually bought some when we went to the finesse store, when we went to the, the French laundry and Bouchon Bistro. Um, it's good. I mean, you can order it online too. Um, I think there's like five or six different flavors, but then there's also like, uh, milk chocolate and dark chocolate versions. And then I think within those two categories, there might be like a couple different locations where they source the beans from like Nicaragua and Venezuela and whatnot. Uh, I don't quote me on the, it being from Venezuela. I 
doubt it based on all the sanctions and stuff like that. It's, it's probably somewhere else. Um, I definitely remember seeing Nicaragua on there though, but it'll, it'll tell you on the, on the bars itself. Um, you can, I think it's like K and M chocolates.com. I don't know if you Google it, it'll come up. Um, but that like the K and M thing, like that was in development for apparently like five years of research and development before they officially launched. Um, you also launched a, a caviar company, Regis Ova. Uh, so he, you know, created that too as well. Um, basically sourcing from handpicked fish farms in the U S South America and Asia. And he wound up opening, uh, the surf club in 2018. That's like in Miami, um, fine dining restaurant. It's like 20 minutes North of South beach. And he also opened the grill, um, which is like a farm to table restaurant on the Seaborn cruise line. Um, so it was like his first like restaurant that he was a part of that was on a cruise ship. And, uh, he actually towards kind of the end of the year, I think it was December, uh, then governor Jerry Brown of California inducted, uh, Keller into the 12th class of the California hall of fame. I mean, he's basically achieved like any award or accolade like you could, you could ever imagine create, come up with, uh, what a couple days after New Year's 2019, you opened another Yonfo restaurant, uh, La Calenda, which is like a like a Mexican cuisine. Um, so like with the opening of that, like the locals instead of calling it Yountville, they call it Kellerville because he has La Calenda, which is at the far end, and then you have it goes in order of La Calenda, and then um, Bouchon Bakery, Bouchon Bistro the finesse retail store, and then the French laundry. And directly across from the French laundry is the gardens that kind of serve produce for all those restaurants too. So it's a lot like all on one strip. Uh, he's got all these different uh, restaurants and businesses and stuff too. It's pretty impressive uh, how he has it set up. And that's kind of the model that Grant Ackett's at Alinier has kind of taken over where all his restaurants are, are around the same area. And even Michael Tusk, um, out in San Francisco with Quince and uh, uh, what's the other name of his restaurant? He has another restaurant and then he's also got a wine bar there too as well that they open. Those are all in the same area. Um, so yeah, like a lot of a lot of places, a lot of chefs as they expand have been like, well, if we're going to expand in the same city, like we can just kind of keep it all in the same area. Then we can, it's easier to bring in resources and ingredients and stuff too as well. Um, you know, you can provide different amenities for all your staff cause they're all located in the same area too, whether it's parking, if it's in a big city or, or something like that too. So it, it makes a lot of business sense. I know Jose Andres, like one of the reasons he groups, if he opens a new restaurant in a city, he usually opens like three or four more because that way it just makes it so much easier for, for sourcing ingredients and food and stuff and, and bringing it in. Um, so that way you can serve all the restaurants on kind of like one shipment instead of individual shipments going everywhere. And it, it just helps streamline things. So, um, and then, uh, where were we? 2019. Yeah. So open that. And then, uh, in March he opened, uh, the TAK room, which was a 200 seat, two floor kind of retro steakhouse, Mad Men era sixties, kind of restaurant, um, 
it was kind of a throwback to fine dining from back in like the 60s so like a lot of tableside service stuff like that that was in the hudson yards which was this new billion dollar development um that got created and then he also opened a bakery there too as well um but around the same time uh kwame Onwachi might be butchering his last name he actually worked at per se as just a, a cook he was on one of the seasons of top chef too i don't remember which one but he published a memoir um he was a uh, the executive chef at kith and kin for a while and uh he recently left but uh, his memoir notes from a young black chef he talked about kind of like the verbal abuse and racism in the fine dining industry and, and that he experienced when he was working as a comi per se uh i believe the head chef at the time was eli kamei i'm not saying eli knew of any of this because you know i from the article excerpts uh it was basically you know a chef that was above him a comi chef is kind of like you're the assistant to everybody on the line um so it sounds like somebody who was on the line was the ones who were kind of mainly giving him the issues, but, um, you know, it kind of started, that was kind of like the beginning too of like the me too movement in the restaurant industry. It kind of kicked that off. I feel like once that kind of got published, um, and everybody started taking way more, more notes of what was kind of going on in the industry too, as well, aside from the obvious offenders, the Mario Batalis and what Josh Besh is the creepy dude down in new Orleans. Um, yeah, if you go back through like the top chef seasons, there's a lot of guest chefs that they have on there that were not treating their staff right. And it's really weird to see like, oh yeah, you guys really pumped this person up. Oh, it turns out that they're a giant piece of shit. So if you uh, get bored and you want to go back through some of the top chef seasons, they're, I think they're all on, uh, Hulu. You can find a good amount of them on there and the Bravo app. I think you can get to some of them too. But, um, what else? July, 2019, uh, he announced that he's going to be opening a restaurant, another restaurant in Las Vegas in the fall of 2020. I think that's been delayed a little bit. It's supposed to be inside the Wynn, uh, casino and hotel replacing the country club restaurant. And, um, that closed because they were trying to put in this paradise park project, but that kind of fell through and all they wound up pertaining from that, I think was like, a a convention center or something. It was supposed to be this grand thing and have all this different stuff and just wound up being too expensive. So that kind of fell through, but his restaurant's still slated to open. I just, I don't think it's going to open this year. Um, there, I think it'll open 2021 sometime. So, um, going on from there, partnered with William Sonoma for a signature cutlery collection again. Um, brand ambassador for Heston kitchen appliances started doing tutorials through masterclass, especially he started before the pandemic, but then really it kind of took off during the pandemic, his masterclass stuff. Um, he was going to open, you know, the, and then it came out that the, the restaurant in Las Vegas is going to be just a, another T a K room. Um, so same thing, just, you know, kind of West Coast location, kind of turning it into a, a chainlet like you did with the Bouchon Bakery and Bouchon Bistros. Um, but he wound up actually closing the TAK room uh, in New York. He closed that uh, in August, I believe. Yeah, it was August. He closed both that and the Bouchon Bakery in the Hudson Yards. It was just too expensive. Nobody was coming because the 
you know, there was no tourism in New York for the summer and looking at it, like as soon as there would be any tourism, it would be the spring of 2021 if everything went right with the coronavirus. So it was just costing too much money. So they had to close it. Um, they just couldn't see a, a way forward, but you know, he also announced that, uh, they'd be, you know, doing a, another cookbook. Like I mentioned earlier, the French laundry slash per se cookbook, um, which would have the Corey Chow of per se, who's the CDC there. And then David Breeden, who's the CDC at French laundry. Uh, they contributed to, it. it's kind of like a sequel to the French laundry cookbook from the nineties. Um, and that's kind of where we're at now. You know, most recently he was in the news for closing the restaurants, but, um, kind of the interesting thing when you think about Keller, I mean, he's got all these accolades and all these different businesses and he founded, you know, this restaurant group and this restaurant group is like the model for so many other chefs coming up who are open multiple, you know, restaurants and stuff across the U S or all in the same city. You know, um, he never got married, never had any kids. So it's interesting to think about like whenever he passes away, which is inevitable for all of us, uh, he's in good health, but you know, um, who takes over? Like what happens to those restaurants? Like, yes, there are chefs that are running the day-to-day operation, but at the end of the day, it's still his concept. He's still on site at the French laundry. He's not there every night cooking, but he still pops in there, um, and observes what's going on and, and helps different, you know, young chefs and stuff who are working there, um, with their technique and stuff like that. Like he's almost like this advisor who's just kind of walking around and everything, just trying to help out, but he's not on the line or anything like that. He's not at the pass, um, expediting or anything like that either. But he's still there. It's not like he just never shows up at the restaurant. So that's an interesting thing to think about is like what what will happen to kind of all this stuff when, you know, who's going to be his successor since he doesn't have any children and and anything like that. So it'll be interesting to kind of to see. He actually wound up cooking. Um, they cooked a dinner at the Culinary uh, Vegetable Institute, which is up in Milan, Ohio. It's like... 30 minutes from like Sandusky where Cedar point is kind of, and I haven't been there yet. I wanted to go and then was actually probably going to go this year, but then, you know, they do like once a month, they do like vegetable dinners that highlight different, you know, like in July, there's like a tomato dinner where everything incorporates a tomato, uh, in some way. It's not the only ingredient that they use, but that's, you know, the focal point of the dish. And, you know, they do it for a bunch of different stuff. So they usually have like a dinner once a month, but they, um, obviously they couldn't do that stuff because of the coronavirus pandemic. So wasn't able to get there, but I know last year it was him, Daniel Balud. I don't remember if there's a third person or not. They were doing like a fundraiser dinner there. So like it was stupid expensive. I can't even remember. I wish I could remember the price that they were charging for tickets. It was so dumb. Um, but I mean, the whole purpose was to raise, you know, funds for the, the culinary Olympic team and everything, but it was just crazy. It was like, Oh wow. He's in Ohio. Like, cause like the vegetable culinary Institute is this cool place where like a lot of chefs go for like their restaurant retreats and stuff. Um, you know, so they'll, they'll cook there and it's kind of like team bonding and stuff too, but it's also this place that you can go and eat 
you know, they have different dinners and stuff. So still would like to do it. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, sometime 2021, uh, hopefully, but, but that's kind of it on Keller himself. Um, the chef who's actually kind of at least is running stuff day to day, uh, right now is David Breeden. So he's from Tennessee, uh, Greenville, Tennessee. It's a small town on the Eastern part of the the state population, just over 15,000. Um, he grew up learning how to cook like traditional Appalachian cuisine from his grandmother and, uh, started working in restaurants at the age of 15, moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, just kept reading different cookbooks that he could get his hands on, you know, Daniel Ballou, Jacques Pepin, uh, Charlie Trotters. And, um, eventually when, you know, Keller published the French Laundry Cookbook, that was kind of when he decided to, you know, after reading that, that he decided to pursue a culinary career in fine dining. Graduated high school in 1998. Uh, then Breeden went and attended Johnson and Wales University in Charleston, South Carolina. That's where he got his culinary arts degree from. Wound up working uh, in fine dining restaurants in Charleston. So got experience and exposure to low country and French cuisine. Uh, Started, you know, at the Charleston Grill, then worked at Sean Brock's McCrady's. After McCrady's, he went uh, to Somerville to work at the Woodlands Resort and Inn. 2005, he got a stage at uh, the French Laundry, and he basically staged there and then parlayed that into an internship, or took the internship and was able to get a full-time position in the, the as the kitchen's butcher, which was like the hardest station at the French Laundry. Um that station was previously run by Ron Siegel, uh, Grant Ackett's, and Ryan Fancher, who all went on to have very successful culinary careers themselves. Um, basically, the butcher position was overseen by the chef de partie, who at the time was Timothy Hollingsworth, who would eventually become the CDC before Breeden. And um, that kind of set the tempo for his culinary career. Um, he was able to learn a lot there, kind of put uh you know kind of put him next in line to be the saucier um which is the person who makes all the sauces for the different uh, french dishes in the kitchen got promoted up to uh chef de partie uh, in 2006 2007 he uh actually transferred over to per se uh worked at uh there as a chef de partie and then worked his way up to executive sous chef and then in 2012 uh hollingsworth it was announced that uh, he was leaving the French Laundry. Uh, he's going to do a culinary consultant position for a while and, and work on opening his own restaurant, um, which he has in L.A. And then um, Breeden was actually, you know, selected by Hollingsworth and Keller to to be his replacement and take over his chef de cuisine at uh, at the French Laundry. And so they moved back, and um, Hollingsworth kind of got him up to speed over the next few months, and then uh, he transitioned into the role. And he's been there ever since. So it's kind of like, you know, he set out to kind of work there. He did. And now he's like in charge of the restaurant that like first got him into fine dining because he read the cookbook of the owner's restaurant, like the owner of the restaurant published. Like it's pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy story. So, um, You know, there's a little bit more on the on the spoon mob page about uh, a breed in there. I mean, I kind of gave a summary. I mean, it's really about Keller, um, and the Keller stuff has to be told because it sets the stage for so many other restaurants uh, and podcasts and stuff that are to come. So, 
check all that stuff out there. But there's a there's a course breakdown too as well for the course that we um, the tasting menu that we had. It's very similar to the one that we had in Per Se. They are sister restaurants. There's like a TV that links both restaurants staff. There's no I don't think there's audio on it. I'm sure they could turn audio on if they wanted to, but um, it's supposed to you know be a symbol for kind of like this togetherness and and shared uh, vision kind of thing. So it's very similar to, like I said, what we had at Per Se. Started off with like a cheese cornet, then there was uh, a caviar dish, carrot salad, um, sea trout, abalone, obviously a bread and butter course, um, bread service, you know, quail. Uh, there was like a truffle mac and cheese. And then a 100-day dry-aged American Wagyu, uh, Gougere. Then there was an ice cream dish, uh, like a fruit dessert. And then kind of the, the coffee, cappuccino, semifredo dish. And then obviously their, their truffles and, and macarons and caramel and little donuts and all this stuff kind of at the end. They just kind of keep throwing food at you um, pretty much. Um you know, when we went there, you know, we wanted to go there. We were able to get reservations. They do reservations like they open like once a quarter. So they open the restaurant reservation book for like a 90-day period that you can book once. So I think it's it's April 1st, January 1st. It's like January 1st, April 1st. Is it like August 1st and October 1st or something like that? Um that you can go on the talk and then and then book a reservation anytime within like the next three months. So it's pretty, it's not that difficult to get, as long as you know when you need to sign on there and the date that you need. Um, it's not super difficult, but it's still a bit of a challenge because it still books up really quick. Uh, not as challenging as a linear, which we still have never been able to get a reservation at for one reason or another, but um we haven't been trying it all this year just because of COVID too. So with all that going on. Um, but yeah, when we went out there, uh, we flew into San Francisco. We drew, drove up there. Uh, we stayed at the Napa Valley Inn, which is like in downtown Napa, kind of like right on the the water. It's, it's, um, it's a fine hotel. I mean, it's kind of reminds you almost of like a bed and breakfast, but it's not. And a um, little creaky, a little older style too as well, but it was fine. And um, that was kind of like our our hub for the few days that we were there. And went to the French Laundry, went to um, Bouchon Bistro, stopped at Bouchon Bakery. I'm trying to think where else we ate up there. Because then we went over to Sonoma. Um, so this was all like last year. Like late March, early um, early April, we kind of did this, and so we did a bunch of we did some wine tastings during the day, and then we went to eat at the French Laundry. And um, I don't know if I want to tell this story. Um, I'm trying to think because it doesn't really involve me, so I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to put this out there. No, it's Katie's story, so Katie will have to tell you the story uh, if she wants to. If she wants to come on the podcast, she'll tell you the story. We'll tease that for a later <laughs> later opportunity. I had to basically finish like the back half of her menu, though. Um, 
so I was extremely full. It's it, it was not the best experience that we had. Uh, like you know, look, I think everybody, should, if you're really into food, like I said, you should go to the French Laundry at least once and have the experience. Regardless, we both like per se better. Um, per se just felt the hospitality felt better. Um, with our server and everything like that, you get like a view kind of central park and, and a little bit of the city out the windows. Um, you know, it, it felt a bit, a bit more like upscale, a bit more special where the French laundry, you feel like you're, you're dining kind of in this, this farmhouse. Um, you know, it, it has the iconic big, you know, blue lacquered door. There's a really cool photo that I have is kind of like the title of the page. Uh, that's a photo I took myself of the kitchen. We were sitting outside um, waiting for our table. So we were having cocktails and that's the the main kitchen. And to the right of that is like another building that you can rent out for like a private dining event. It's kind of like the private dining. Um, there, there's a shit ton of cooks in there too as well. Like it's a giant staff that they have, but it's all well manicured. And then directly across, like I said, from the restaurant is the garden Um you know, and there's like a flagpole in the middle. You can see it during the day and everything. But, you know, it's it's such an iconic restaurant. I definitely wanted to go to. But per se, I, I wouldn't go back to the French Laundry myself. It's just too difficult to get there. Um, I'd rather just go to per se. I, I think per se the experience that we had was overall better. The one thing that was disappointing about the French Laundry too was the table that they sat us at was, you know, you're, you're kind of in this corner. And that that wasn't the issue, but where they had the table positioned was like directly under this AC vent. And so you just have cold AC blasting on one of the people at the table for the entire duration of the menu. Katie originally sat there and she was like freezing. I was like, we can switch. And it's funny cause we wound up switching and like that threw the staff off. They're like, uh, cause we, there's like a couple different supplement courses. So you have to decide on like what you want to order. Um, and we usually order each of one and then just eat half and then swap dishes. But they were kind of like thrown off. They're like, uh, wait, no, you ordered the mac and cheese thing, but you're, you're not sitting over there. And you could see them kind of like looking at us like, wait, what? And it's like, I I think we even asked them like if they could turn down the air, which they're not going to do. They have an entire restaurant full of people. Like they're not, they're not going to close the vent for you, which sucks. But it's like you shouldn't put a table directly under a vent. Like I feel like that's pretty obvious. Uh, there's no way we we're the, also the first people to complain about that either. Sitting there, like just move the table, like three, like move all the tables on that wall, like three feet the other way, so nobody's getting blasted with AC for three hours. I don't know. That was just kind of a little disappointing. It was like, you know, it's this it's supposed to be this kind of grand experience, and I don't know the kind of the overall service part was a little underwhelming in the fact that like nobody thought through like, Oh, here's this AC vent blowing on people. It didn't ruin the experience. Like we just swapped seats and like, you know, at the time I think jackets were required. I don't think they require that anymore. Um, but most everybody gets dressed up anyways to go there. Um, so I was fine, but I mean, you could definitely tell like, yeah, it's a little chilly on that side. Um, but Katie's got a, a story for the French Laundry. Um, maybe we'll get her to come on here and tell it one day. Um, if she's not too embarrassed to buy it. But we'll see. Uh, 
if she wants to tell that, I'll save it because it's her story to tell. It, 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 it happened to her. So um, we'll just tease that. But like I said, uh, super important restaurant. Keller's like one of the best chefs, um, you know, one of the most famous chefs that we've ever had in America too. So I do encourage everybody to, to go there. But if you don't want to make the trip, uh, definitely would recommend Per Se. There'll be a, another separate podcast uh, on Per Se. But I wanted to start with the French Laundry in Keller just because that was his first restaurant. Um, so I won't go through like the Keller bio again for per se or anything like that, as well as, um, Bouchon Bistro, which we ate at too for lunch, uh, on that same trip. So there's plenty more on this page. It took me, this was probably like one of the hardest pages to write just cause there's so much information on Keller cause he's been around forever. So, um, I tried to hit all the, the important parts, but there is some nuanced stuff in there. So go ahead when you get some time to read through the bio, um, I have the bio linked up with every one of his restaurants that we've been to. So, you know, check out the French Laundry page. But if you click on like Bouchon Bistro per se, like it's all still there. Uh, it's all the same information. And then um, Breeden's bio too is like right below it. And then I got a course breakdown with course photos. From our experience at the French Laundry, I would say the best dish. Might have been the abalone. It was either the abalone or the caviar dish. It was one of those two. Um, but yeah, check out the breakdown of all that stuff. Spoonmob.com backslash French Laundry. And uh, check out our Instagram too as well. French Laundry's got their own Instagram, uh, as does Per Se, Bouchon Bistro and everything. And... Um, Appreciate everybody listening. And this is a bit of a long one, but it's a pretty famous restaurant, pretty famous chef. So I wanted to kind of do it, do it service and do it justice. Um, make sure you follow Spoon Mob Instagram, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, help spread the word too as well. And uh, check out all the other previous restaurant reviews and parts now known podcasts that I do with Ben Nelson. And, um, yeah, appreciate it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys later.